Let's go ahead and read Genesis 9, verses 8 through 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. That includes you, because you are of the offspring of Noah, just as I am. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Okay, I've mentioned before the, the cyclical nature of the writing of back then. They like to repeat things to emphasize them. So you, hopefully you picked up on that word covenant several times because it's very important. Last time we saw the ark come to rest, the floodwaters began to recede. God had drowned the earth in judgment, but finally Noah and his family were able to exit the ark. And this passage here is the end of that story. It's really part of that story. But since it includes a component that we should not overlook, which is the covenant that God made with Noah, and because this is not the only covenant that God has made throughout Scripture, I wanted to take the time to examine really the entirety of Scripture. So we'll see how far we can get through this today. But what is a covenant? This is a Hebrew word, and the word is berit, and it means covenant, but what is a covenant? A covenant is a binding agreement between God and man. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 18 was the first time we saw it. God told Noah before he built the ark, he said, I want you to build the ark. I'm going to preserve you through the flood, and I will establish my covenant with you. And then in Genesis chapter 9, verse 9, he does establish that covenant. So a Binding agreement between God and man is the definition that I've given it here. It's similar to a contract, but it's really stronger than that. It's closer to the Constitution, where there's an agreement between the people of this is how we will conduct ourselves perpetually, or the Magna Carta in England, or choose your example. The Bible gives us our best examples of it. So God fulfilled his promise. He said, I'm not only going to bring you through the flood, but I'm going to establish my covenant with you on the other side of the flood. And we read last week the regulations that were put upon Noah. There were new permissions that were given, and there were also new regulations that God put in place. He's calling them to obey him, to obey his statutes, and in turn, he promises not to flood the earth ever again. And so every time we see a rainbow in the sky... We remember that as it says, God has hung his bow. That word there is just bow, like an archer would draw his bow. And you see how the rainbow is like someone hanging a bow upside down. The idea is that God is no longer hostile towards us, but that he's hung up his weapon, so to speak. Because I'm not doing this anymore. And we talked about that some last time, how God's no longer going to interfere with the seasons and the cycles. He's chosen to show mercy and allow the world to turn. And he says, I, I will... Establish my covenant and I will still fulfill my promise. Every covenant, I'm not going to dive too far into this, just about has a sign of some kind. The rainbow is the sign of Noah's covenant. Clothing for Adam and Eve was the sign of the covenant God made with them. Circumcision was the sign of Abraham's covenant. The Sabbath was the sign of the covenant for Moses. Baptism or communion, there's some debate on that, is the sign of the new covenant. These are things that remind us, right? Just as the, the rainbow reminds us of God's covenant and even reminds him of his own covenant. I think that's pretty cool. And we discussed last time as well, this was the end of the old world. We've taken special pains to draw out going through this that the world before the flood was a very different place. 
Peter says that the world that then existed perished. It's gone. It's over. It's the beginning of a new world, the world that we inhabit today. And so for that reason, it's the perfect opportunity to look at the big picture in Scripture. Salvation history, progressive revelation, God's covenants with man. So, as I said, this is going to cover a wide swath of Scripture, but I'm hoping it will give us a picture of the framework by which God has governed the world that he created. Now let's pause and ask a very big question. What is the purpose of the world? Why did God create in the first place? You ever ponder that? It's a difficult question to answer, and trying to just pick one thing is a little difficult, but I think there's a couple things that we can combine to arrive at an answer. I think the first thing we can see is that God is creative. God wanted there to be something rather than nothing. God created a world. He wanted there to be a place that he could fill with people, and those people would make something. It's what he said to Adam. Go out, fill the world, and make something of it. Secondly, I think you can add to that, God desired a relationship with the people he created. So God's motivation for creating the world is similar to our motivation for having children. I said, why would you want children for? Well, because we want children. We want to have people that we can love and train and teach, and this is similar to why God created didn't want it to be full of people. He wanted it to be full of his people, right? And thirdly, God created a stage upon which he could manifest his glory and which he could demonstrate his power and his greatness. I think there's some folks that want to zero in on that one and say that that's the only reason, but I think that scripture gives us a bigger picture than that. So a short little definition for you here. God wanted a world full of his people to demonstrate his glory. That was the plan from the very beginning. When God said, let there be light, this is what he wanted. Now, we've already seen in Genesis, God's world went awry because of sin, because of rebellion, that his people rebelled and became no longer his people and tried to take glory for themselves and the serpent that tried to steal glory away from the Lord. And so since the Garden of Eden, things have changed, and things have changed in Scripture multiple times. But God's goal for the world has not changed. God still wants a world full of his people for his glory. And so for that reason, we have seen that God has not been passive throughout history, but he has been active in history. He has intervened, and that's why we have the Bible in large measure, to show how God has intervened in the world. But because people have free will as well, angels, it seems, have some measure of free will, there have been disruptions to that plan. People have tried to take it their own way, but the good news is that God has not given up on us. God did not give up. He always had a plan. He began with one plan. That was disrupted by sin, and he's been working ever since to bring it back to that. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, this is kind of our theme verse for tonight. It says, Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, here it is, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Paul is saying it was a mystery before. God's will is a mystery to us until he reveals it. But he says now in Christ, we finally see what he was up to all this time, uniting all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. There's always been a plan in order to accomplish his purpose, which we've already seen. Now, as God has worked out that plan, as we've seen several times already in Genesis, even up to chapter 9, he has done so in stages. There have been episodes, you could say, or chapters to the story, both in response to the wickedness of man and also proactively. This more happened later, where God stepped in to accomplish his will. And this is what we call generally progressive revelation. That is, over time, God has revealed himself progressively. It's not that God invented new truth. It's that God knows that we're like kids going to school and you can't dump it all on them at once. Progressive revelation. And as you get into the later books of the Old Testament and especially into the New, it sheds light on the Old Testament and you see that that truth was always there, 
but it just was not fully revealed yet. That's progressive revelation. And it culminated in the gospel and in Jesus Christ. And it will ultimately consummate in the new heaven and the new earth that God is going to create. And part of that progressive revelation has been a series of covenants that God has made with people, either with all of us, like you just said with Noah, you and all your descendants. There wasn't anybody else, so it's everybody. Or with certain people like Abraham, certain groups like the nation of Israel. And each of these significant covenants, there are places where it says, for example, God had a covenant with the priesthood, but this is not on the same level as what we're talking about. Each of the significant covenants has inaugurated a new stage in the single plan of God. God only had one plan and one destination, but along the way there were steps, there were stages, so that he could have a world filled with his people for the glory of his name. We call this salvation history, that God's plan is progressing forward. It's not as if God is going, oh man, what am I going to do now? It's that God is progressing the plan and moving it forward. The way he runs his house is how the Bible is going to describe it. He's guiding history towards his purpose for creation. Now we saw in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, it said, a plan for the fullness of time. And that word plan is tricky, which is why it's translated several ways across translations. And it's the Greek word oikonomia. You can hear in that. It sounds like the word economy, doesn't it? Oikonomia. Oikos, it's a compound word. Oikos is like those yogurts that you buy at the store that say oikos on the side. It means house. Namia or namas is the masculine form, means law. For example, deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. So oikos and namas together make oikonomia, house law. So administration, the way that somebody lays down the law in his house. That makes sense? So this is why it can be translated several different ways, like the plan or the administration or the dispensation. You've heard of somebody dispensing their authority or dispensing their plan, and that's where that word comes from. That God has an oikonomia. You, you maybe heard it said the economy of God's plan. That is how he's working it out. He's got the plan, and here's how he does it. I had a boss at my last job, and he would have a plan, and it was my job to figure out the oikonomia. <laughs> it was my job to figure out how it was going to get done. Well, the Lord handles both. He's wise enough to do that. Now, we hear that word dispensation, and you hear I've underlined it. We are Calvary Chapel, verse-by-verse people. We study the Bible and do theology almost exclusively in context because we teach verse-by-verse through the passage. So as it comes up, we address it, and it's very helpful because it helps us from taking things out of context. And we kind of have an allergy to theological systems in Calvary Chapel. And that's a healthy thing because systems can be rigid, and they can find passages that don't quite work, and rather than bending, they'll insist that the scripture has to bend for them. So it's good for us to have an allergy to systems, or at least a caution towards it. But that said, and all that being true and something I believe in, when we do our thing and go through the plain reading of scripture like we do, and come to an understanding of how God has worked out his oikonomia, his administration of the fullness of time, this places us in the broad broad umbrella of a system called dispensationalism. This means what? We recognize that in the unfolding of salvation history, God had distinct stages or dispensations in how he, oikonomia, how he administered his house. Galatians 3, 23 through 26, for example, gives us a great explanation of this. Now, before faith came, We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. What Paul is explaining here is the law was in place for a time, and a time was going to come where the fullness of God's gospel would be revealed. And that's why he says we're no longer under the law. 
We see this here in Genesis chapter 9 as well, that this is the end of one, as we call it, dispensation, and it's the beginning of another. It's the end of one chapter and the beginning of another. God is establishing something new. And so tonight I want to give an overview of the entirety of this, from Genesis to Revelation, how we understand it. But before we do that, I do need to clear some things up, because the terms that we're using tonight have baggage attached to them, and I want to make sure that we know which baggage is ours and which one is not. You ever be at the airport and the thing's going around and that same blue bag comes around and it looks just like yours? And you pick it up, oh wait, that's not mine. There is some of that when we talk about this. So let's make sure we know which baggage is ours. The first thing I want to say is that when we are talking about the capital D dispensational theology, we should view this more of as a descriptive system rather than a proscriptive system. What's the difference? As long as we are using that big word to describe what scripture says, then that's great. But the minute you start to take the system that has been born out of scripture and then go back to the scripture and try and adjust the text, you're in serious trouble. That's proscriptive. Descriptive says this is the way it is. Proscriptive says this is the way I would like it to be. So that's no good, right? We don't want to fall into that trap. By that I mean when you read the Bible plainly, I certainly think so, you arrive at a naturally dispensational position, descriptive rather than proscriptive. And in my case, I've been reading this Bible for a very long time and always understood it this way. And then when someone explained to me the dispensational system, I'm like, oh, well, I've always believed most of that just by reading my Bible. And then when they want to start to add other stuff, I'm like, well, I'm not quite so sure about that. Where other dispensationalists get into trouble and make the rest of us look really bad is when they start to split hairs. This is the error of dispensational theology that we could stray into. We split hairs to the point where no longer is it this is God's unfolding plan. It's almost like you've got seven or eight different religions happening throughout Scripture. And that's no good. And you want to find places in Scripture, well, this one is for me and this one is for you, and we don't need to worry about that one. And Okay, that's no good either. That's proscriptive. And the best examples of those who believe this, and hopefully that can be us, don't do that, but it does happen. There are some people that have some wacky thoughts and say, well, if you're a dispensationalist, you have to believe that. And if that ever became true, I would say, then God bless you. I'm going to walk away with my Bible and leave the big word behind. But the biggest objection, and this is a false objection to dispensational theology, is you people teach that there were different ways of salvation throughout Scripture. Is that true? Absolutely not. Acts chapter 4, you all know this one, verses 11 through 12. Jesus is the stone that was rejected and has become the chief cornerstone. You all know it. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation has only ever been and only ever will be by the grace of God through faith in the work of Christ Jesus on the cross. That's period. And anytime anybody wants to step in and start saying, well, th no, th this is a non-negotiable, okay? Whether this was the anticipatory faith of men like Noah and Abraham, they didn't know Jesus' name, for example. They didn't see him coming. But according to what had been revealed to them at that stage of progressive revelation, they were looking to God to deliver them. Adam knew that someday God was going to send the seed of woman to crush the head of the serpent. That's where he placed his faith. It was faith in Christ Jesus, but he didn't know it yet. He didn't know his name yet. Then by the time you get to Peter and Paul, it's explicit and it's very clear. It's only ever been through faith. And we're going to see that as we go through this tonight. Remember, we are discussing God's oikonomia, his administration, how he's handled, how he's unfolded the plan. It's not different plans. There's only one. But it's how it's unfolded in the different chapters in the one story. Now, there's another major organizing system here that's also conservative and orthodox and all the rest of it, but does not like the big D word dispensationalism. It's called covenant theology. We both believe in the covenants, but the covenantalists will come out and say, 
There are no distinctions between how God has worked out his plan. There's no distinction, for example, between Israel and the church. It's all the same. It's all blended together. And, yeah, they're, they're brothers. They're Christians, obviously. But the big difference is that they believe that God has not had any kind of change in the way he's administered the world. And I think that seems obviously incorrect because we're not worshiping on the Sabbath day and offering sacrifices. So something somewhere changed. And Abraham was not in the temple and Noah was not in the temple. So that, that's, I, I think, an obvious mistake. And I don't think that they're sinners. I think that they're wrong and that's okay. But the problem that I have with that is it leads to what's called replacement theology, where it says God had all these plans for Israel, but God's done with Israel now. He just works with the church. So Israel's over, and everything that God ever said to the Jews now belongs to the church. So all the promises God made that he would make an everlasting covenant with them, and he would give them the promised land, and that David would sit on the throne in Jerusalem, that's over now. Now, that's, that's not only incorrect, I'd say that's dangerous. Because that's the kind of theology that, I, I was at a, a pastor's meeting one time and this one guy was making comments about the nation of Israel that was edging beyond, you know, friendly critique of one's government, if you understand what I'm saying. And, it's like, that, that, and I was like, but those are God's people. He goes, well, not anymore, they're not. Like, what, he said, well, I don't, I don't, there's no relevance to Israel or Jerusalem anymore. That's covenant theology coming home to roost. But I think if you read the scripture plainly, you're going to avoid all of the mistakes that you could run into. And that does, I believe, place you under the umbrella of dispensationalism. Although you guys have been here for two years, it's probably the first time you've heard me mention it before. So the important thing is that we know what the text says, not whatever system you care to subscribe to. But I think Hebrews chapter 1 sums it up real good. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Many times and in many ways, all building up to Jesus, but many times in many ways. And we call those many ways dispensations, different administrations of God's house, different oikonomia, governed by the covenants that he made with his people. And as I said, before we move on from this, it's best to be a descriptive dispensationalist. That it is the best way to describe what the text says, rather than, here's my system, now let's go back to the Bible and see what we need to fix. That's not good. So that's enough what it's not. Let's move on. Let's give a positive description now of what these different stages, the word is dispensation, oikonomia, that word, what constitutes a dispensation or a stage in the unfolding of God's plan? Charles Ryrie is one of the luminaries of this theology, and he put it real simple like this. A dispensation is a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose. A distinguishable, you could say, way of doing things in the outworking of God's single purpose. I like the phrase, a stage in salvation history. So let's focus on this. We, we could spend forever talking about this, but I, I do need to go quickly so that we can get to it. And we can spend more time on the details maybe another time. But that, that's a definition. What, what does it look like? What does a dispensation in Scripture look like? We've already seen some of them, so hopefully this is familiar to you. And there's five things that I drew out here. Number one, there's always a covenant that launches or inaugurates a new dispensation. God makes a covenant with either the whole world or with a certain group of people, namely Israel. The covenant is the most important part of this. And really, there's folks that want to just focus on that, and that's fine. But the covenant both inaugurates and regulates that dispensation, that outworking of God's plan. It starts something new, and it regulates how it's going to be. We just saw that last week in Genesis 8 and 9 with Noah. He said, all right, Noah, we're starting fresh here are some changes that we're making, and here's how it's going to be from now on. All building up to the same plan that God always had. There's always that covenant. Within that covenant, there's a set of commandments or rules or regulations for the people within the covenant to follow. And it's very clear to note, these commandments are not necessarily once for all rules for everybody. I think of the dietary laws of the nation of Israel, for example. 
They were necessary for God's purpose at that time. But as Paul said in Galatians 3, there comes a time where some of them move away. Next, there is a promise from God. So it's not just, here's what you've got to do. Just like God said about the rainbow and not flooding the world, God says, here's what I'm going to do. So it's, it's an agreement, how he's going to respond to the faithfulness of his people. But historically, unfortunately, there's always a failure within that covenant. Man never keeps the covenant. It's never God who fails. We mess it up. And that always leads to judgment. And sometimes that failure and judgment will cycle around a couple times until the Lord begins something new. And I think you maybe could break that down differently, but this will work for us tonight. But let me just emphasize again, the covenant is the main thing. God is making an agreement with his people. And when we understand these covenants, it helps us understand not just the past of what God has done, but the future of what he's going to do. So there's a prophetic element to this, which is really cool. And I also emphasize again, nothing in there talks anything about a new way to be saved. They're not talking about new ways to be saved. There's only one way, and there only ever has been one way to be saved. This is a stage in salvation history as God is unfolding time to the ultimate goal. God is not idle. He acts to preserve his plan, to keep his promises. Scripture is a story, and there are chapters to that story, and we call them dispensations. So that, that's an overview of what we're talking about, but the best way to understand it is to look at it and explain it and understand it. So we're going to run through these, and there's seven that most agree upon and that I would agree upon too. It's not a magic number, but God seems to like the number seven, just like he seems to like the number 40 for some reason. I don't claim to understand why, but there are those that maybe want to quibble about the number, but I'm not really worried about that. We're going to try to be descriptive. So as we go through this, I might come to a piece and say, I'm not really quite sure how this part fits in with the system. That's the way to do it. Not to come to scripture and say, well, it's got to fit the system. Say, well, maybe this is inadequate. And I think most of our systems are inadequate when it comes to scripture, don't you think? But let's begin with the very beginning. The time before the fall. God created the world. He placed Adam and Eve in the garden. And this was the beginning of History. This is what we call the dispensation of innocence. And God made a covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden. We refer to this as the Edenic covenant. Genesis 1 doesn't really use that word, but Hosea 6 talks about Adam transgressing the covenant. So the Lord saw it as one. And you know what it is. The Lord said, I'm going to place you in the garden. You're going to keep the garden. You're going to multiply and fill the earth. And the Lord is going to bless his efforts. And he was not to eat of the forbidden tree, right? That's the covenant. That's the setup. That's the dispensation. That this is the way the world is right now. And this is how I would like you to live, Adam. But God wanted a world with his people for the glory of his name. And that's what he created in the very beginning. But unfortunately, we know that this did not last very long. <laughs> in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve broke the covenant. They ate of the tree the fall of man. They were cast out of paradise. There's that long passage in chapter 3 where he curses the serpent and then the woman and then the man and the ground is cursed in there. And of course, the ultimate judgment was death. Adam and Eve and all of us eventually die. But what we saw as we were reading through this in Genesis 3, God did not abandon the world. God did not torch it and say, okay, do over, we're going to mulligan and try again. What he did was he adjusted not his plan, but the economy of his world to accomplish the goal that he had from the beginning. It's what we call a new dispensation. So we read this. This is the promise that God made at the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. This is called the dispensation of conscience. And we call it that because God did not put any official structures in place yet in order to shepherd his people. It essentially was up to them. The promise God made was one day I'm going to send the seed of woman to crush the head of the serpent. And in Genesis chapter 4 verse 7, Cain came to God bringing his sacrifice. And God explained what the requirements of it were. He said, sin's crouching at the door, but you must rule over it. The only thing that was really governing people at this point was their own conscience. And God is calling Cain to listen to the promptings of his conscience and of the Holy Spirit. 
They were offering sacrifices. And this was the, the next dispensation. They're not in Eden anymore. They're out of Eden, but they're still living under God's economy. And I want to make this point here because it's the obvious place to make it. Even here, salvation was not by works. It was by what? Faith. Cain brought a sacrifice, but God did not accept his sacrifice. Why? Because his heart stunk. Meanwhile, you've got guys like Enoch, where it says Enoch walked with God and God took him. Enoch didn't do anything except demonstrating that faith in the Lord. So you see, even back there, God's like, no, no, no. Don't think you can come in and work the system and think that's going to make it enough. The just shall live by faith. Even though that verse had not been written yet, it was still true. So I wanted to point that out. But of course, you know that they did not keep that covenant either. And we talked about that a few weeks ago, that there was the murder of Abel. We saw Lamech, who was the first one to marry more than one woman, and he started boasting and how he would exact revenge greater than God's revenge on Cain and the episode with the Nephilim. And we see that God was intervening a lot at this time, but wickedness was abounding. So God brought judgment and brought an end to that dispensation with the flood. Very, very clear distinction there. He brought a violent end to it, and he only saved Noah and his family, the ones who had enough faith to get on the ark. And now here in this passage, as we're reading tonight, we see that God made a new covenant with Noah and inaugurated a new dispensation called, typically it's called the dispensation of government. I don't like that name. So we're going to call it dispensation of justice because God did not establish a, an official governmental system, what he did was he gave men permission to execute justice themselves. So it's essentially the same thing, but I think this is a little cleaner. The dispensation of justice. And he made new rules again. It was different after Eden, and it was different after the flood. He now says that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. He now permits them to eat meat. Again, this is an example of a commandment or a permission that is not necessarily a moral issue, but it's something that God is permitting. He put fear of man into the animals. He reduced the age of people. He said, I'm no longer going to mess with the seasons and the cycles. This is a very distinct difference between the way it was before and after the flood. The means of salvation have not changed, and God's ultimate plan has not changed. But the way he is working that plan out has changed at this point. And his promise was, I will never judge the world again by the flood. You can see that the world at this point is gone. We've moved into a new one. But mankind did not even obey this time. They did not spread out. They did not fill the world. They began, as we're going to see in the next few weeks, to follow a guy named Nimrod, who was a hunter. And now when you see Nimrod was a hunter, the idea is not, oh, he had a lot of bucks mounted on his wall. He was a hunter of men, is the idea. He was a violent man that brought the people together and said, we're not going to listen to God. We're going to build a tower for ourselves. We're going to go up to heaven, and then we're going to be God. And so you know what the Lord did. The Lord judged them by dividing them into nations. There were no nations before. So God said, if you're not going to do this, I'm going to do this for you. Failure and judgment. So we've got those three so far. You've got the Garden of Eden. You've got Adam and Eve after the Garden of Eden, and you've got the covenant God made with Noah. What we've seen about all of these first three is that they have been universal covenants, universal dispensations from Adam to Noah. But when God divided the people into nations, the next step in salvation history is for God to select his own nation and begin to use them as his voice on the world, his chosen people. And that, of course, is Israel. God's going to choose Abraham, and he's going to begin to make covenants with Israel. Remember, God's plan is to have a world filled with his people for his glory. And in order to do that, he's going to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. So what God's going to do next is he's going to choose a man and say, it's through your family that that deliverer is going to come. So in Genesis 12, we are introduced to a man named Abram. And later his name will be changed to Abraham. And with him, God is going to make a new covenant. This is the 
dispensation of promise or the Abrahamic covenant. God says, I will bless you and through your seed, I will bless the whole world if you will leave your land, come to a new one and worship me as your God. I think Abraham is the best example we have of somebody actually keeping the covenant that God made with him. But this is the dispensation of promise. And we call it that because the controlling administration of the world at this time is the promise. All of human history is focused on this guy and his family and God's plan with them. Everything's hanging on Abraham and his family. And then, of course, through Isaac and then through Jacob. And what is significant, as I just said, with this covenant is that it was not made with all people. It was made with a specific people. That's Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. So this is the covenant that God made with Israel, the first one. And as Paul explains in Acts 17, and we'll get to that, the rest of the nations, which is goyim in Hebrew, which is translated Gentiles, the rest of these nations, they enter what Paul calls the times of ignorance, where it says God is going to leave them be for a while. He's going to work out what he's doing with Israel, but he's got a plan to save them too. So we'll come back to that. What makes dispensationalism unique from covenant theology is that we recognize that this was different than what he had done before. This was for one family, one nation, and that it was a literal nation. It was not a metaphor for something else. That when God said Israel, he meant Israel. He didn't mean the church later on. The minute you start to say this word actually means this word, and you start to go back into your Bible and reread that, you're, you're in serious trouble. It might be more difficult to read it the other way, but if that's the way God put it, that's the way we have to read it. And he says, I'm going to bless all the nations. He's not abandoning them. He says, I'm going to use you, Abraham, which is why I'm making a special covenant with you. Jesus Christ would come from Israel. And as I said, we're trying to be descriptive here. So we've said that at the end of every dispensation, typically there's a failure and a judgment. I don't know if you can really point one out here. A lot of folks, what they want to say is, well, they ended up in Egypt as slaves, so God judged them. But if you read the story, it doesn't say that God judged them. It says that God had them there because he was wanting to demonstrate his faithfulness and to give the Amorites time to repent. So this is what I mean when I say we're being descriptive. If it doesn't always line up with your chart, that's not a big deal. There were lapses of faith that, of course, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had, but the Lord never at any point says, that's it, it's over. Instead, what you see is that when the Israelites multiplied in Egypt, God liberated them, and he made a new covenant with them at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. And this is what we call the Mosaic Covenant, because it's a covenant God made through Moses, or the dispensation of law. That's the law with a capital L, the law of Moses. When God said, I'm going to bless you or curse you, based on your adherence to my commandments, and I'm going to bring you into this land, and I'm going to let you fill this land, and you're going to be my priest nation for the whole world. I'm going to use you to reach everybody if you will worship me and keep my commandments. Once again, this was not with all people. There were Indians and Chinese people and Vikings and everything else at this time. They were not part of this. This was with God's chosen people, Israel. He brought them out of the nations to make this covenant with them. And he promises to give them the land, the land of Canaan. And we should note here too, God gave them lots of rules, gave them lots of regulations. Here's how you're going to dress. Here's how you're going to eat. This is how you're going to sacrifice. You're not going to work on this day. But none of those things were means of salvation. I hope we know that by now. It's very common to hear people say, well, the Jews were saved by keeping the law, and we're saved by faith. <clears throat> Wrong. Absolutely not. Galatians 3.11 says, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. How many people? No one. Zero. For the just shall live by faith. Paul's quoting from Habakkuk there, which is an Old Testament book. And we even see this in the Old Testament, that People would come in and keep God's commandments, and God would judge them. Well, I thought he was, he was keeping the laws, and he was keeping the dietary restrictions, and God's like, yeah, but I can see your heart. 
Remember what Samuel said to Saul? To obey is better than sacrifice. Do you, do you think God wants your rams? Do you think he's hungry, Saul? God wants you to be obedient. Remember David in Psalm 51 says, You do not want a sacrifice or I'd give it. The sacrifices of God are a contrite and broken heart. It's always been by faith. I want to keep emphasizing that. The law came in for what reason? Well, God was trying to draw a part of people for himself to be his priests for the whole world. That they're going to relate to God for the people and relate to the people for God. They never lived up to that, but that's what God was doing. He gave them the law to distinguish them. You're going to dress different from everybody else. You're going to eat different from everybody else so that they can say, well, what's up with you guys? He's going to regulate their righteousness. And he's also going to prepare them for the promise. Paul talks about this a lot. God gave them the law to expose how sinful they were. Try and keep these 10 rules. <laughs> oh, no problem. I got this. At the end of the week, you're like, oh, man, this is, really, this is really hard. And then eventually you grow up and you realize, I think the problem's with me. And then you start to say, God, I need your help. And that's that anticipatory faith, right? You're looking forward and saying, God, I can't save myself. I can only trust you. Now, you know as well as I do, Israel broke this covenant before they'd even finished writing it. The golden calf was built when Moses was upstairs writing it down. They broke the covenant repeatedly. Judges is that cycle, right, of sin and then getting judged and then coming back and then doing it all over again. But the Lord had mercy on them repeatedly. And eventually that would end with the, the Assyrian exile for the northern kingdom and the Babylonian exile for the southern kingdom. And after that, they were always subjugated. Except for a really brief period, about 100 years, called the Hasmonean dynasty, and anybody who knew the law knew this is not legitimate. It's not good. They never achieved what they had before after this was done. However, in the midst of all that, God made another covenant with one of his people, with his servant David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, when David has completed the conquest symbolically, he's taken Jerusalem, and he comes in and says, I'm going to build God a temple. I dwell in this palace and God's in a tent. I'm building God a temple. The Lord comes in and says, no, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And he makes a promise to David that there will be a son of David to sit on the throne in Jerusalem and reign forever. And that your kingdom is not just going to cover Israel, but it's going to be over the whole world. This is the Davidic covenant. It's anticipating the dispensation of the kingdom. 2 Samuel chapter 7 explains it. We see it not just in Samuel, but the prophets talk about this a lot. Psalms talk about this a lot, that God is going to preserve the king, that his son of David will reign and will finally bring us back to where we need to be. So for Israel, they're looking to the promise that God is going to bless all the nations through them. They're living in the law, and they're looking forward to the kingdom for David's son to sit on the throne. And when you get to the time of Jesus, they're looking for the kingdom. They're ready for the kingdom. They're oppressed. They've got Rome marching through the streets. They're paying taxes. They've got traitors to their own cause that are collecting taxes from everybody. And they're ready for that son of David to come. And then here comes a guy named John the Baptist. And he starts baptizing people in the wilderness. And he starts saying, repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That got people's attention because they knew what the kingdom was. They were ready for it. Jesus, in Mark 1.15, began to proclaim the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, just as Zechariah had prophesied. And they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're like, this is our day. And guess what? They were right. That was their day. But what happened? What happened at the end of that week? The ultimate failure of Israel, they killed the promised one by nailing him to the cross. The son of David came. The one who would inaugurate the kingdom came. And they said, we have no king but Caesar. We'll rule ourselves, thank you very much. We don't need God in his kingdom because he doesn't just want to give us political victory. He wants to change our hearts. He wants to change the way we live. He wants to change the way we talk. I don't want any of that. We'll deal with things the way they are. And they nailed the son of David to the cross. 
Jesus said on that day when he was riding into Jerusalem in Matthew 23, he wept. Everybody else is cheering and celebrating, waving palm branches. Palm branches were a, a nationalist symbol for Israel. It was the symbol of that Hasmonean dynasty when they had ruled themselves for a while. Hey, finally, and Jesus is weeping. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. That's been the hang up ever since the beginning, isn't it? God wanted to do things the right way and we were not willing. So he said in verse 38, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is saying, until you can say that and mean it and recognize that I am the promised one and that I am the son of God, you're not getting your kingdom. The kingdom dispensation should have begun when the Davidic covenant was fulfilled in Christ Jesus. But Israel killed their king and rejected God's purpose for them. This was the pivot of salvation history and it went entirely wrong although the lord was wise enough to know and to set it up israel failed so what what was god going to do israel just rejected their messiah we talked about this in the book of acts what and the the church was baffled the disciples couldn't figure it out they went home to galilee what are we they just rejected the messiah maybe he wasn't the messiah after all well, the next thing that happened, as you know, we're standing here today. The New Testament calls the stage we're living in now, you ready for this? The mystery. Isn't that cool? You're living in the mystery. Because you read through your Old Testament, it was unexpected in the course of salvation history. But let's read Ephesians 3, verses 4 through 6. Paul says, you know my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles, the nations that God excluded from the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenant, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Remember, the promise had been made to Israel. The law was given to Israel. The kingdom was to be for Israel. But if you were to skip a few centuries and come back, you'd be like, where did all these Gentiles come from? New Testament spends a lot of time addressing this because it's an important question. The promise was made to Adam. Someday I'm going to crush the head of that serpent. And God said, and Abraham, I'm going to use your descendant to do it. The seed of Abraham, as it's called. God's plan was always for what? A world full of his people for his glory. That was always the plan. And according to Romans 3.25, it says that God has passed over former sins. God knew that people were going to continue in sin. So he says, here's the plan. Here's the oikonomia. I'm going to focus on Israel, get the Messiah, and then Israel will take the good news to the world. But when Christ came, Israel rejected the kingdom. They rejected their responsibility. And so God said, fine, I'm going to do it without you. I'm going to reach the Gentiles, and they're going to listen. Remember when Paul said that? He says, I've, been, I've done everything that I need to do, and you're not listening. I'm going to the Gentiles. He's going to reach out to the Gentiles without Israel. Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 had spoken of a new covenant that was coming that would be based on faith, would be based on the heart rather than rules and regulations. So when Jesus came, he established a new covenant with the world that whoever believes in his sacrifice on the cross would receive everlasting life. What's the new covenant? John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Is that it? That's it. Praise the Lord. This is called the dispensation of grace or the dispensation of the church. Some people want to use that because there's been grace all along, but this is when we really get to lean into grace, right? And now we're all called to repentance and faith in Jesus' name. The blessing of the Holy Spirit is given to us. 
the hope of heaven. Paul had said in Acts 17.30, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's why the Great Commission is so important. Y'all get that, right? Because we're supposed to take the message because God's like, Listen, I gave y'all thousands of years of mercy, but now there's no more of that. It's time for you to get it together. And as far as concerns that salvation, just as has always been the case, God does not distinguish between Jew and Gentile. Paul says several times, yeah, the Jews have a leg up because they have the scriptures and the covenants, but that doesn't make them more likely to be saved. John the Baptist put it a little more starkly. He said, God could turn that rock into a child of Abraham if he wanted to. Does that mean we have to keep the law? No. It's a new dispensation. It's a new covenant. We live under this now, grace. Law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is the most liberated, the most empowering time to be alive ever. Isn't that awesome? You get to live now. How awesome is that? We live under that. Even those who had died in that anticipatory faith, the saints of old, the Gentiles who maybe had gotten it, because Paul said in Romans 2 that even if you don't have the law, if you abide by the conscience God's given you, you can become a law to yourself. So those who had in some way reached out to God, we find them occasionally throughout Scripture, they couldn't be saved because there was no sacrifice yet, but the New Testament talks about that Jesus went and proclaimed victory and led captivity captive. He said, all right, fellas, we're out of here now. I paid the price. The serpent's head has been crushed. Let's get out of here. God has solved the spiritual problem. He's delivered us from sin. And so we get to go out and spread the what? Good news. It is good news. Finally. <laughs> All of history, we've been waiting for this. And now, here it is. Don't keep it to yourself. But here's the question, though. We have to ask this question. All that's great. But what happened to Israel? What about the kingdom? Did God abandon them? Are all their promises just spiritualized now? So some folks say, now oh, God's done with them. They blew it too late. Absolutely not. Paul says in Romans, has God abandoned his people whom he foreknew? He says, megenoita in Greek, which is translated God forbid or absolutely not. Or you could put it like, what are you, nuts? Are you crazy that God would abandon Israel, his chosen people? that he brought out of Egypt, and he says in the prophets, he toddled them with their hands like little kids, and how could I give you up, and so much mercy. But then finally God said, nah, I'm done with you guys. Jeremiah 33, God says, I would sooner break my covenant with night and day than I would break my covenant with Israel. He said, I would sooner make night follow night and day follow day than abandon Israel. He promised them a kingdom. He promised them the son of David ruling from Jerusalem. That has not happened yet. Why? Well, we already saw why. They had their opportunity and they blew it. And Paul explains it in Romans 11.25. If there's ever a memory verse you need to know, this is one. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight. <laughs> What's that mean? He says, lest you Gentiles think somehow you figured it out when they didn't. Let me explain this to you. I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Partial hardening. Jews can still get saved, of course. But the Lord has pulled the wool over their eyes. He's hardened their hearts. It's fine. No king but Caesar, have it your way. Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. The end of the verse says, until... The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God's plan was always to use Israel to reach the Gentiles. And they rejected that responsibility. So God said, fine, I'm going to use what remnant is left of you. But this church is going to end up being mostly Gentiles. And when I'm done with them, I will return to you. It's the situation that we see in Hosea chapter 3, where Hosea had bought Gomer back. But he says, you must dwell as mine for many days. The idea is, yeah, we're still married, but we're basically roommates for a while until we can figure this out. He says, because Israel will dwell for many days without a temple, without a priest, without a king, without an ephod. And according to Daniel chapter 9, I'm having to skip over some very detailed prophecies here, but we're going to just do that. Look it up on your own time. According to Daniel 9, Israel has seven years of history left. 
He said, there are 77s established for your people. And the 69th would end when Messiah came. So where's the last seven? It's the seven years of great tribulation described in the book of Revelation. Seven years. This is one reason among many why we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Because that's Israel's time. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble in the Bible. Not our time. We also know, according to certain passages, especially in Thessalonians, that there will be a great apostasy in the church at the end of days. And the Lord is going to redirect his attention to Israel. During that time, the Jews will be in their land. And you know, that's what the Bible says. And people have taught it for a long time. And people used to scoff at that idea. Israel's never coming back. They've been out of that land for 1,500, 1,600 years. And then all of a sudden, boom, there they are. Made people sit up and take notice a little bit. And, and good. It says during that time that there will be a temple. There's not one there now, but they'd like one to be. But during those seven years, it says Israel will face the worst persecution of all time. Them and anybody who names the name of Jesus Christ. The Lord's going to send out angels to finish the work of evangelism at that point. Isn't that cool? And that persecution is going to turn the screws on Israel so hard that it says they will finally cry out to the Lord. Like Jesus said, they will finally say, we killed our Messiah. It says in Zechariah, they will look upon him whom they pierced. And they will grieve for him like you grieve for an only son. They're going to figure it out. God's going to reveal it to them. And they're going to be surrounded by their enemies. The Antichrist will be out to crush them. They're going to cry out and it says the heavens will split open. And Jesus will descend from heaven, put his foot on the Mount of Olives, and destroy all of their enemies. And then you know what he's going to do? He's going to establish a what? A kingdom. Finally, the dispensation of the kingdom will begin. It says in Revelation, he will rule for a thousand years. One thousand years of what? A world full of his people for his glory. How awesome is that? So the sixth covenant is actually for the seventh dispensation, and the seventh covenant is the sixth dispensation. But if you're taking notes, you can write that down. If not, don't worry about it. <laughs> it says in Revelation that Jesus will rule then with a rod of iron. Now, we don't like it when people rule with rods of iron because people are sinful. But when you've got a righteous Jesus Christ, he's not putting up with sin. He's not putting up with injustice. He's not putting up with wickedness. You will worship the Lord. And God will finally have what he intended at the beginning. A world full of his people for his glory. And God will have used Israel, the Messiah, Jesus, the promised one, to accomplish those goals. All of that. Do you see how all of human history is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ? He's the centerpiece. He's that chief cornerstone that the builders rejected, but that's where he belongs. Jesus Christ. And you know, even that kingdom, how is the Lord going to bring history to an end? It says that the Lord is going to turn Satan loose one more time. And all those people that have been living under Jesus' reign, even though they've been forced under law and under the power of God to do the right thing, it doesn't mean that their hearts have been turned to the Lord. And Satan is going to come out and he's going to say, Jesus is a tyrant. He won't let you live. You know how it used to be? People were free. They could do whatever they wanted. And you're stuck here following this guy. And it says that Satan will raise an army that cannot be numbered and march on Jerusalem. But it also says that Jesus is going to slay them with the sword of his mouth. And that battle is going to be over like that. And then you know what it says? The heavens and earth will flee away. The sky is going to get rolled up like a scroll. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And that's when the party begins, ladies and gentlemen. The Lord brings it all to a close for his glory with his people. And he says, now let's do something new. <laughs> I love it. It all comes back to Jesus, doesn't it? And you can see it every stage along the way. The Lord told Adam, and he told Eve, really, your descendant will crush the head of the serpent. That was Jesus. Abraham, your seed through all the world shall be blessed. Jesus the sacrifices all pointed to Jesus. The son of David was Jesus. The dispensation of grace is all about Jesus. It all comes back to him. Amen. And I realize that this has been a lot of information. Because I just had to give a summary of world history from start to finish. 
the stuff that hasn't even happened yet. <laughs> but I hope this has been, has been useful for you as well as encouraging for you because the Bible, like I said, this isn't, the Bible doesn't lay it out that neatly, but as we study the Bible, you can start to draw some conclusions, and I think this is a useful structure. The key points to realize, I'll summarize these, is there are stages in God's plan. It's all one plan, but this is the oikonomia. It's the dispensations. There have been stages or chapters governed by covenants that God makes with his people. That there is a unique place for Israel, the vehicle of his promise, and that God has a place for them in the future. That even when you approach Scripture, you acknowledge its plain sense. Because the narrative might get a little convoluted, but you arrive at something that's true because it's what God said. And you know what's so cool? You are privileged to live at the best time so far. The church age, where grace governs all. I'd much rather live under the dispensation of grace than law or justice. Grace. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. I love this. Concerning this salvation, your salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they were prophesying about stuff that didn't even pertain to them. So they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They're prophesying these things. God's revealing these things to them and say, when is that? I want a piece of that. Lord, when's that going to happen? And it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Even the angels in heaven are like, I wish I could understand what he's doing with them. Look at this. Look at what the Lord has done, how wise he is. The Lord filled them with his Holy Spirit. I want to be filled with his Holy Spirit. Why don't we angels get filled with the Holy Spirit? And it all centers around the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, the prophets wanted to see what you see. Blessed are your eyes for seeing what you see. And blessed are your ears for hearing what you hear. All the promises of God, all the covenants, all the dispensations are bound up in Jesus Christ. That's why we say in him, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Not just I'll never leave you, forsake you, but I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. I'm going to return for you. So when we look, bringing it back now at Noah and the rainbow in the sky, we are reminded that God is not hostile to us anymore. And if Noah thought he was getting a break from the judgment of God, then we have a greater reason to be joyful. Because not only has God decided in his mercy, I will not execute judgment, God has decided to bring forgiveness and redemption and cleansing. He says, I'm not just going to not punish you. I'm going to remove the reason that I needed to punish you in the first place so that I can treat you as if you're righteous even though you're not. I can treat you like my child even though you're not. I can treat you like you're perfect. I can let you sit on my throne with me, the Bible says. Heirs with Christ. So when you see that rainbow, it's not just there's not going to be any more floods. It's the hostility of God and man is over. He's hung up his bow. He's, I'm not shooting any more arrows your way. It's all the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. He has done everything that is necessary to bring us to himself and deliver us from the coming judgment. Which is why we speak of the end as the consummation. That it's going to all be fulfilled. The Bible says that now you've got just the first fruits. You've got a foretaste. You've got a down payment or a deposit. That right now the kingdom of heaven is shed abroad in your hearts, but one day it's going to be shed abroad over the whole world. And I hope that you today have entered into that new covenant that you've placed your faith in Jesus, you've repented of your sins, you said, I know that I need God and I know that Jesus is the answer. Laying yourself out before God and saying, God, I'm not trying to do it my way anymore. I'm going to do it your way. I'm going to worship your son, Jesus, and trust that his sacrifice was enough for me. And now when I have to jump off the cliff of life and enter death, that I know that you're going to be the one who's going to catch me. If you've not done that, you need to do that. The news is too good to ignore. Oh, 
oh, just give me a little more time. I've got some stuff I want to do. <laughs> Are you crazy? You don't think that God's got something better for you than what you can do for yourself? How's that working out for you anyway? Don't worry, I'll figure it out. No, you won't. You'll come to the end of yourself and you'll either get bitter or you'll come to faith in Jesus. But the Lord extends the invitation now and says, you don't have to walk through all that. I can do it right now. And if you have put your faith in Jesus and you are under that new covenant, consider how blessed you are. Take a little joy in that. You can never deserve it. That's the thing that we try to think, well, I don't deserve all that. Yeah, that's the point. That's the whole point. God had to do it because you couldn't. So don't say, well, I don't trust myself. Well, don't trust you. Trust God. Is God good enough? Is he enough? Walk out your life in gratitude for God's immeasurable grace to you. And if I can add one more point that's pertinent to the times in which we're living. Human history is under the direction of a sovereign God. The Lord's plan is not going to be disrupted. Satan is always trying to disrupt the plan. But the Lord is not about to let some weaselly little devil disrupt the great thing that he made. And you know what's going to happen? When we enter into that kingdom with the Lord, the new heaven and the new earth, it's not going to be like the Garden of Eden. It's going to be better than the Garden of Eden. Because we're going to have the redemption and that whole story behind us. And the last thing Satan is going to see is the glorification of God's people. The thing that he temptingly promised us, knowing it was a lie in the garden, the Lord's going to give it to us freely by the grace of Jesus. John said, we don't even know what we're going to be because we're going to see God as he is. And who can see God as he is? I can't wait. So as we walk through some dark times, God's got it. That doesn't make it any easier when you're walking through the moment and it's tough and it's hard, but I hope you've got that deep-seated joy that says, someday it's all going to be right.